0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge of Wharton.
1: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Behind the Markets on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School.
2: Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. We're joined in our Wharton studio this week by Lee Chen Ren. And Gaurav Sinha, both also at Wisdom Tree. Please note, I'm registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Gaurav is also a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Our discussion is not tied to the Office of Investment Products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of the affiliates. We have an amazing show today. We've got Professor Siegel with us for the hour. We also have a very special guest from the University of Chicago who's out with a new book, uh, Dr. Raghuram Rajan, uh, who's going to talk to us about his new book about the third pillar how markets and the state leave the community behind. Uh, it's going to be a really interesting conversation for the full hour. Um, but, but Professor, a lot of news going on this week. I know you want to comment on what's been happening in the markets, the Fed and the interest rates moves, and uh, what's happened. So let's just start off with you and some, some general market uh, commentary here. Oh.
3: Really a fascinating uh, open market meeting. It is, as we predicted last time, that it was going to prepare the markets for a cut uh... which was likely on the next meeting which is july thirty first but what i found particularly fascinating uh, about the results of this meeting uh... was uh... encapsulated by the dot plot now as our listeners might know the dot plot is the projections by the fomc members both the voting and the non-voting members uh... of what they think appropriate interest rate policy is going to be in the coming years and for the first time that i could remember we see a sharp split um, uh... about half the members said we should hold interest rates as they are uh... the other half said no we should move them down and not just by twenty five basis points but fully seven of them uh... Believe that we should move them down by 50 basis points by year end. So that is uh, going to be in uh, the last, the next six months, um, which I find is going to bring about some really interesting <laughs> meetings and interesting uh, debate uh, in the coming uh, in the coming months. Now, as you know, it has been my opinion that we should bring them down, and I favor an immediate. 50 basis point cut neil kashkari came out today he's a non-voting member from the federal reserve bank of minneapolis uh and he said i would have voted for 50 we had the first dissent under the powell uh, regime of james bullard and as you know jeremy james has been on our program a number of times uh very thoughtful um Almost at the vanguard of, of thought here on the open market committees, when one of the people that are saying interest rates are, you know, lower and should stay lower much longer uh, than the others, and others are beginning to come to his um, thoughts, he was quite a, uh, quite uh, unique at one point. But now uh, you can see more people are following him. So uh, it's 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 quite interesting to see what's going to happen. I. Uh, again um, we saw uh, incredibly the 10year uh, drop below two percent yesterday uh you know right now it's uh, 206 but it dropped in 198 197 which is uh you know absolutely incredible below two percent the fed funds rate is uh, still as I'm looking at at 237 um, and uh, with the you know the 30 year is at 258 so we' all, even the, if you use the thirty year as a benchmark and then you know there's a there's good reason to think the ten year is already inverted, but the thirty year is only twenty basis points from being inverted uh, at this point so um there's there's a lot to think about um now the market likes the fact that the Fed looks like it's going to be aggressive they actually the market actually believes that the dovish group is going to win here because if you take a look at fed funds futures you see them definitely looking for 50 basis points or even more by the end of the year so they think the others are going to come around uh albeit uh, slowly
2: yeah it's it's interesting so when you think about you know, and you had been talking about we're going to get 10 to 15 percent this year, and the markets have really zoomed high. We're at all time highs. How do you think about now that the market's repricing all of this in? I mean, where's your sense on what's the catalyst? I mean, there seems like downside catalysts in, you know, they don't get a trade deal or, or right. know, the Fed's or not Iran, as—
3: Iran, I mean, you know, uh, although, you know, the Iran situation is nowhere near as negative as it was before, given the U.S. is, is actually uh, uh, almost an oil exporter. uh, You know, the energy the energy sector is a big sector on the S and P, much better than bigger than even the economy. So, uh, higher oil prices is is not a big negative, and uh, was actually a big one of the big reasons why the 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 S and P actually moved into all time high ground uh, yesterday. Uh, But we do have that uncertainty on the on the oil front. Very definitely, Um, the trade is no closer to being solved however again the expectations as i said of the market is there will not be a 25 percent tariff there will not be a war um what it is is feeding off of uh, the market hopes for uh, that earnings are going to be up more than four percent but they're also reveling in two percent interest rates where there's no competition for stocks uh now so in a way there's a, a big support for the market uh, you know, even if earnings don't come through in a big way, and I think that's led to some comfort buying over the last couple of days in the market. What's going to happen next six months? Wow, um, I think it's going to be a moderate increase. Um, you know, I'm calling for maybe up another five percent. Uh, I, I uh, but what, there's a big, there's a standard deviation around there given the trade, the Iran situation, what might happen politically, one way or the other. Um, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty. But clearly, you know, uh, the uncertainty is not affecting the stock market, um, and it's not, uh, you know, we have, we have the VIX at 14, which is not as low as we've seen it in the past, but certainly not accelerated level. Um, High-yield bonds are still doing extremely well, so we don't see a lot of risk, uh, you know, in... In those financial markets yet, but we do see a lot of what I call binary type of events that could occur that clearly are going to keep a lot of people on the sidelines.
2: Well, very good. Let me bring in our our, our guest for the hour and get, maybe get some of his perspective on the global economy, and, and get transitioning to the conversation on his book. Um, Dr. Rajan um, was the is was the head of the Central Bank of India, so he is also very well versed in global monetary policies. And I thought maybe Dr. Rajan, before we turn to your book, any quick comments on the global economy as you see it from? Having been the head of a central bank and has your has had commented on Fed policy and other policies a lot. What what's your sense of the global economy and uh, your just your outlook? Well, uh, I, I think uh,
0: there's a huge amount of policy uncertainty with the trade wars going on and now uh, the administration starting to com- comment on currency policies of other countries. Um, there is uh, still, you know, even if uh, China gets uh, um, you know uh, taken down a peg or two in terms of uh the uncertainty after the G G20 meetings there's still the issue of tariffs on uh, on Europe and Japan especially on the auto sector so so my guess is that uh, at this point what is uh, holding up uh markets is really um the prospect of lower interest rates both in the United States but also in Europe and elsewhere, as uh, central banks come to the rescue once again, now this is not a healthy situation uh the world cannot continue to remain dependent on cheap money uh, in order to um, improve its prospects and th- that that has me worried i i I would love for political tensions to come down, but given the the geopolitical um, battle in some sense between the United States and China and uh, everything else surrounding it, uh, I think uh, it's going to take time.
3: Uh, Raghuram, uh, first of all, let me thank you very much for being on. Um, the opportunity to, to talk to you and get your thoughts is, is is very, very valuable to us and and the program. I don't know if you heard my earlier comments on this latest meeting, um, Uh, There, you know, a lot of it is, you know, it's a debate about what is the natural interest rate or what we call our star uh, in the developed world. Uh, It may be zero or may even be below for short term assets, Um, you know, far lower than what we've had historically. Um, Do you have a feeling on that? And what has caused this? Absolutely dramatic decline, not only in nominal rates. I mean, we do know low inflation is there, but but in real rates uh, right. that uh, are so extraordinarily low. Well,
0: I, I think we don't. Uh, and I, I would say this: uh, the trade issue is an overhang on top of uh, already um, uh, sort of uh, low real rates and a prospect of weak economic growth going forward. Clearly, uh, there's something to do with aging societies uh, which is uh, responsible for the weak aggregate demand even uh, so many years after the financial crisis we don't quite understand it uh, and uh, that's something we'll have to figure out over time in addition of course Um, uh, one additional source of responsibility for uh, low growth is the low productivity. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course, we're seeing some pick up in recent months and it may be that as labor markets get tighter, um, um, employers may invest more in labor-saving equipment and that may enhance labor productivity some. It may also be that we are we're mismeasuring growth, but that won't account, if we're mismeasuring, that won't account for the really low real interest rates that you pointed to. So, I mean, there are lots of puzzles circulating at this point. Uh, What is true is that um, when you look at overall investment, uh, it's probably not where we would want to be even while desired savings are high, and uh, that's that's another way of saying there is uh, relative oversaving at this point, which is why real interest rates are low. Uh, why we are getting this environment is much less clear, uh, and uh, the culprits there are many possible culprits, but uh, you know research is, is slow in getting at the answers.
3: Well, just in, in commenting on. It, if we are mis suppose we're mismeasuring the price level we've had several of our programs on that where um, it's not we're not measuring either quality or the internet or free goods or something so prices are not rising as fast that would help us understand a little bit about real because right. real are not quite as low if we get a true price level there is that would that not be correct
0: that's absolutely right so if if the problem is is we are mismeasuring the quality of goods, and uh, therefore inflation is actually lower than what we are measuring it to be because we are uh, paying for better quality goods. Then uh, you would subtract uh, a little less uh, from the nominal rate to get the real rate, and that would suggest the real, real rate is a little higher than what is currently measured to be. That that's that's absolutely correct. Uh, but I, I was uh, thinking, uh, let's take the real rate as, as, as true. Uh, that would suggest um, a relatively uh, weak um, uh, investment, if you will, relative mm-hmm. to savings. And uh, the
3: question and is, why is that an investment so weak? weak? Real growth as real per capita growth and total growth real, in real terms, I think has slowed down around the world.
0: Absolutely. And and so, uh, you know, again, productivity has been part of that. The uh, slowing growth of the labor force has been part of that because as the baby boomers age, uh, we are seeing people leave the workforce and we are seeing slower labor force growth. So there's been uh, there've been these uh, demographic factors, productivity factors um, uh, responsible for some of this. But uh, it's still, I mean, there are elements which we don't fully understand.
3: Yeah, and, you know, your book is wonderful, by the way. Uh, I have a copy right in front of me, The Third Pillar, How Markets and the State Leave the Community uh, Behind. A lot in that book, a lot. Some of it I agree with, some I don't, but uh, a lot of of food for thought. Um, uh, Would would you just maybe like to summarize just a few words for some of our readers, our listeners, that... You know, maybe you're not familiar with the book, and then I'd like to discuss some of your, um, not only your, your, your thoughts, but even your solutions to the problems we have.
0: Absolutely. So, so maybe the,
3: uh,
0: I mean, it's um, uh, really a book which says much of the debate in the 20th century was about how much government, how much markets. And I argue that, you know, uh, a critical component of a well-functioning capitalist society is not just the markets, not just the state or the government, but the third pillar, which is the community, because that's central to preparing people to participate in markets that is giving them the early childhood education, the values, the nutrition, the health, that uh, makes them adequate market participants. But also in many countries in supporting them when they fall off the markets, when you uh, lose your job, when you run out of your savings, Where did people in uh, Southern Europe, for example, go during the Great Recession? They went back to their families. They went back to their villages because that was the structure that supported them. And similarly, in the United States, we had this phenomenon of many kids not leaving home and living in their parents' basement uh, post-Great Recession because they simply couldn't find jobs. So the the community, in a sense, is both... uh, Pre-market preparation helps you uh, become adequate market participants, but also is post-market support. It's it's a kind of safety net, uh, and uh, perhaps most important of all, it is also the basis for democratic action. and And what I document in the book is many times the uh, sort of basis for capitalism, opportunity for all, has been protected by democratic protest, by, for example, in the 19th century, the early populist movement, uh, the farmers protesting against the monopolies, uh, the railroad monopolies, the um, banking monopolies, and in that process, trying to open up capitalism wider and preventing the nexus between, uh, you know, the big capitalists and uh, various aspects of the government. So um, the, the, the... the central thesis in the book is the reason we feel uneasy about capitalism today, the, the reason there is uh, so much protest across the world, um, why we see the rise of populist nationalism. Uh, I tie it all to, um, you know, uh, well, largely to weakness in the community that across the industrial world, we have communities that have been hit three times. Uh, First, because uh, trade and technology have hit some communities really hard. Um, Granite City, Illinois, which is a steel city, uh, essentially lost an enormous number of jobs. And you can find places like that across the industrial world, the places that, for example, the French gilets jaunes are protesting from. Second, that in these very places, uh, you also see that soon after you, there's an economic loss of jobs, you also see social dysfunction creeping in. Because people don't have jobs, um, you see marriages breaking, you see um, um, substance abuse, you see teenage pregnancies. Um, and as social dysfunction sets in, the local institutions also start breaking down. Schools no longer are adequate uh, and uh, don't teach as well as other places. And then uh, what you have is the third problem, which is in order to get the jobs in a technologically advanced economy, you need superior skills in order to move up from where you were. And that's much harder when your local institutions aren't functioning, when you, your schools aren't providing, uh, or your community colleges aren't providing the kind of training that you actually need. So essentially, I would argue the the way to deal with this very uh, differentiated impact of technological and globalization across uh, communities within a country is to start at the community level itself to repair our communities and that 's the way we 're going to deal with technological change in part the reason I keep saying we need to start at the community rather than in Washington is because each community has a different problem and uh, the specific problems of the community have to be dealt with there itself by the people who know it best and how do we make that happen in these communities which are which are breaking down is the key problem to my mind of, of industrial countries today.
2: Let me just reintroduce our guest real quick. We're talking with Dr. Raghuram Rajan of the University of Chicago, author of a new book, The Third Pillar, about the state, the, the markets, the community, and, and, and these different measures that he's he's talking about. Professor, I interrupted you there.
0: No, that no, no, I'm done. I, 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 I Sorry, it took a long time to no, outline right. the premise of to the, to the, the book. book. No,
3: let me, uh, you know, it's a very interesting um, question about is this rise of this populist slash nationalist really due to a pushback on capitalism or, or markets, um, or is its source uh, something different? there was an interesting article, I think, by Professor Goodwin in uh, last uh, Sunday's New York Times review uh, saying that it is not really anti capitalist, it was more. Anti immigrant, anti others imposing their way of life. It really, uh, you know, I mean, if you're anti capitalist, you wouldn't vote for Republicans and Trump. I don't think you'd, you know, vote for Boris Johnson and and, uh, and Brexit. And, and many, many of the actually these leaders, uh, and we, we can even, you know, obviously M- M- Modi, I don't want I really, obviously you're much more of an expert on the Indian economy, are actually. These populist leaders are seen as, as more pro-market in many, or more capitalist. Uh, even if you take Poland and Hungary, I mean, Poland particularly, they, they, they wanted to purge the communists that they thought were still running. And it was more of an anti, don't tell us what to do. There's this liberal elite world that's all integrated, and they all have their set of values, and they think everyone should have this set of values. And um, I I don't agree with that. Is is that more of a, of a or is that also present? I definitely think so. Uh,
0: I, no, um, I, uh, Professor Siegel, I didn't say it was anti-capitalist. I said it was a threat to capitalism. And I'll tell you why it's a threat to capitalism. Um, the premise of capitalism is largely open markets. That means open flows of people, goods, capital, etc. And uh, the – I mean, there are various forms of populism. There's a populism of the left, which is more the redistribution. Uh, We're losing, therefore we want uh, redistribution, even while erecting barriers to trade. There's populism of the right, which is uh, certain forms of nationalism. Again, there are very varieties of that. But often the component that's that 's most anti market is the protectionism in that in that uh, uh, populism of the right, but there 's also uh, anti competition uh, oh uh, these migrants are taking our jobs, so let 's keep up out the migrants oh these foreigners are competing with us let's keep out foreign trade so that's that's those are elements of the anti market but uh, i mean if you think about uh, brexit uh, brexit is in many ways and uh, this goes back to my point about the community one of the features of integrated markets and technological change is precisely that markets come together across the world and as markets come together what market participants want and you've uh, been in markets a long time they want essentially a common playing field they want a level playing field but they also want it to be Uh, Sort of the same pretty much where they go. They want the same rules, they want the same because they want to be able to essentially minimize transaction costs as they go across markets. So the tendency of markets when they integrate is to essentially imply an integration of governance also. Give an example, it used to be when banks were in a town, the town used to set capital requirements for banks. That used to be the regulation for banks. Now, as banks became statewide, the state capital used to set capital requirements. As banks became national, they were set at the national capital. Mm -hmm. Today, they're international. So Basel, a small town in Switzerland, where people meet, central bankers meet, that's where capital requirements are set for banks internationally. The point here is that governance tends to migrate up. in fact, if you think about the European Union, the entire project is about harmonization of governance across European countries so that there's a common market. And that will allow for the free flow of goods and people across that market, the four freedoms that Europe talks about. The problem with that is people are not happy. When they don't have control, when they see decisions being made... But the
3: backlash the against this moving up of control exactly to get the power back to the community.
0: Exactly. And that's, that. I mean, if you think of Brexit, Brexit at one level is saying, let's take power back from Brussels. But it's not about leaving power in London. Uh, Northern England wants to take power from London also because London has absorbed too much power over the last so many years. So, in a sense, the community has become disempowered. And when you're tackling these big forces, which you have no control over, Uh, part of what you want to say is, look, somebody else is making these decisions for me and I feel unhappy. So, I mean, some of the populism is tapping into that also. Uh, You talked about Eastern Europe. It is talking about why should these others make decisions for us? Um, And that hits at the notion of, of markets also because markets want an integrated government. And, in fact, people are saying maybe it's gone too far.
2: Dr. Raj, when we talked, we started off with uh, monetary policy, and you talked about you know, the, the the challenges of these integrations and trade dynamics. Uh, and, and it's it's interesting. You're one of the, the the conversations happening from, let's say, Warren on the Democrat side, and and you, Trump talking about Draghi's currency manipulations on the DAX surging higher. Um, from your seat as having been the head of the central bank, how are, how do you just look at the currency? Uh, interventions that are being tried to be made on these sides? And how, how do you look at all that's being talked about there in relative to this conversation? You know,
0: I was worried about this day coming <laughs> uh, because I, uh, it, one of the effects of monetary policy is to spill over across countries, right? Uh, when the U.S. cuts interest rates, what happens is the dollar depreciates. Now, uh, one of the effects of uh, lower U.S. rates is the hope that the U.S. economy gets stronger. And as the U.S. economy gets stronger, it draws in imports from other countries, and that's good for the rest of the world. But the immediate impact is for the dollar to depreciate, which tends to reduce the extent to which uh, the U.S. would want to import from the rest of the world. So monetary easing tends to have an adverse effect on the rest of the world, hopefully balanced by over time by your own stronger growth, which results in your buying more goods from the rest of w- the world and helps them. So this, this has been the dilemma for monetary policy that, in general, in normal times, uh, monetary policy cuts are both good for you and good for the rest of the world. But there are times when it may seem as if, you're cutting interest rates in order to steal an advantage over others yeah. you
3: got but the bigger thy neighbor currency. policy Patton. exactly in those exactly. days i mean this goes all the way back even before floating exchange rates i mean obviously even during fixed exchange rate devaluations took place with exactly that goal in mind
0: well so the, the the imf was was structured to try and prevent that. So if you want to uh, move away from your fixed exchange rate, you had to ask the IMF and it usually, unless you had a strong case, would say no. But you're absolutely right. In the 30s, when you had these, when you didn't have these rules of the game, which uh, uh, was set in place with the IMF, uh, there was the beggar-thy-neighbor strategy. Everybody was trying to steal demand from, from their neighbor. And uh, after all, uh, you know, it's a zero sum game. Uh, There's only so much demand to go around. Well, this is precisely what President Trump has been saying that, oh, um, when Draghi sort of talks about weaker monetary policy, he's attempting to weaken the euro. Now, uh, obviously the Europeans immediately said that was not our intent, but uh, in a sense, every monetary action has this spillover effect. And for some time I've been saying, well, we need to think about uh, how we communicate about this and under what conditions uh, certain uh, monetary actions are okay and when they're not. And unfortunately, um, I mean, if we don't have that kind of dialogue and when it's, when if we don't make clear uh, how our monetary actions are going to affect others, we're going to have uh, politicians starting to comment on that, which may not be pro- uh, which may not be very useful.
2: So, so, are you supportive of the type of things Trump's trying to do in these trade deals with China, with Japan, and trying to make currency policies as part of the trade negotiation?
0: Well, I, I think that at this point, uh, you know, even China has given uh, is not really manipulating its currency. If anything, it's trying to keep it from weakening. Uh, And if you look at China's current account surplus, it's close to balance. So the years, the days when China was running a huge current account surplus are gone. Um, So um, I I, I doubt that currency intervention is a big part of what China is doing. There are other issues, of course, with how it treats intellectual property and what kinds of requirements it places on countries to do, uh, you know, to come in, To the Chinese markets, what what companies have to do to enter those markets? That those are fair issues to have a dialogue dialogue over. Uh, And my uh, sort of thought, uh, which is not original, a lot of people have said this, is if you wanted to do that, the right thing would have been to go along with Japan, go along with Europe, and deal with China. At this point, uh, unfortunately, um, it's. The United States is engaged in bilateral discussions with each one of these people, uh, each one of these countries, and that may not result in the most effective deal.
3: I agree. I mean, I've always thought that on this intellectual property, which I think is a very valid point against China, that a multilateral approach led by the U.S. would have been more effective um, uh, than not— although we didn't have any real leadership to push that issue until trump but uh, is he going about it in the best way or not <laughs> that's and and i think he has in my opinion totally the wrong idea about a trade deficit being you know just as uh, by itself a bad thing well we as economists understand that that that's a, a fallacy um, Professor, a fallacy to t- when you have a full employment economy uh, such, such as we have today. But on the intellectual property side, uh, we did need a little more force and leadership. The question is whether uh, Trump is going about it the right way or not, and I'm, I'm not at all convinced on that.
2: We're going to have both of these professors here with us for the rest of the hour. We have to take a quick break. We're talking with Dr. Rajguram Rajan of the University of Chicago, author of the, the great new book, The Third Pillar, Professor Siegel's here. We're going to bring in two other of my colleagues for the second half of the conversation. You're listening to Behind the Markets and SiriusXM 132. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back. This is Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 132. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. We have Dr. Rajguram Rajan from the University of Chicago, Professor Jeremy Siegel from Wharton, I've got two of my colleagues, Lee Chen Ren and Gaurav Sinha. Uh, and Lee Chen, I know you've been dying. You've read the book with lots of outlines. And I know you want to throw Dr. Rajan a question to start us off on, on the second half here.
4: Thank you, Professor Rajan. Uh, thank you. Um, I really want to quickly talk your book and re- enjoy the book. There's so many interesting statistics and uh, historical facts. Uh, the thesis you're is very much... Um, uh, based on the European history and also based on UK history, I wonder uh, somewhat the rise of the state from the feudal lords, very much like the Game of Thrones. Uh, did you like watch uh, the movie as well and see how the similarity to your book?
0: Yeah. Well, I, I did watch Game of Thrones, but I I, I wasn't. Uh Um, I I didn't draw that similarity. Of course, uh, intrigues and so on matter, but uh, you know, the reason I I talk about um, the developments in the United Kingdom, the protection of property rights that came from the rise of the gentry was to draw a parallel to uh, today and to say that, you know, one of the differences between countries with authoritarian governments. Um, a number of emerging markets uh, versus countries with uh, with constitutionally limited governments and checks and balances, for example, the United States or even the United Kingdom is the presence of a vibrant uh, corporate uh, private corporate system, uh, which is comparative. Uh, which is independent, which doesn't depend on the government for credit, doesn't depend on the government for favors, for licenses. Yes, I mean, there is a, uh, there are people who allege there's a swamp, and there is a little bit of a swamp in these countries, but not the kind of collusion between government and private enterprise that takes place in many emerging markets and makes it very hard to have checks and balances in the government.
4: Yeah, so actually on that, um, I think when U.S.-China has a regional trade war, in China, Chinese uh, ordinary people, they're actually very welcoming of the of the tariffs uh, from President Trump because it helped reduce a lot of prices. But when U.S. decided to take on Huawei, a lot of Chinese middle class uh, got a little bit anti-U.S. because Huawei, indeed, at least in China, is considered one of the top private uh, um business um on that point I want to um talk a little about in your book you mentioned you know the landed gentry was able to check on the state and in China, at last 30 years, one of the disappointments is that the Chinese middle class has not acted uh, as a check on the state. Um, people have, you know, feel the idea that this middle class against the state may not uh, be the future of China, but much more like the Taiwanese model, that somebody from the inside, a top leader, realize, you know, he himself wants to change. Like, how do you, um, like, how do you view of, of these thoughts?
1: It's a great
0: question. Uh, what will drive uh, a Chinese movement to democracy? And of course, uh, one of the Chinese concerns is uh, what happens when there's a weak state, uh, which has happened occasionally during China's history and hasn't turned out well for the country. Uh, you know, uh, very horrendous wars during those periods. Um, uh, w- in, in China today, uh, I mean, the private sector is again, uh, as in many emerging markets, uh, is not independent of the government, and uh, in fact, uh, as as you know, there are party cells in in various private sector firms. Uh, the party itself wants to keep the private sector, especially the large private sector firms, under some kind of control, and even small to medium-sized private sector firms often their ability to uh, enter the market initially is facilitated by local government officials, and therefore there is a connection uh, with the government uh, yet again there. And, of course, given the preponderance of uh, of big national uh, or government-led banks, uh, credit also becomes a function of government favor. So, uh, you know, as in many emerging markets, I think the private sector is much more indebted to the government than elsewhere which then suggests you know where is the uh, the move going to come from to uh, reduce the uh, impact of the party or the influence of the party and i think you're right that uh, it may well be that that change in uh, china comes uh, from within the party um, of course, uh, the Chinese remember very well the example of Gorbachev in uh, in the in the Soviet Union, and don't think that is a good example of an internal reformer uh, breaking things down. But perhaps they may conclude that Gorbachev did it too early in the Soviet Union, and there may come a time when a measured uh, relaxation in uh, in uh, China just like for example the PRI uh, gave up uh, power in uh, in Mexico or uh, uh, the uh, liberal party in in, uh, in Japan gave up its dominance maybe there may come a day when that realization will happen
1: Professor this is Gaurav I want to ask you about this increasing friction between capitalism and and the communities and the democracies each of these three sort of pillars or you know, if I understand your book correctly, are, you know, not exactly at loggerheads, but are are having increasingly more friction between them. Now, if I understand it correctly, middle class is generally a stabilizing pillar between, let's say, capitalistic infrastructure and uh, a well-functional democracy because middle class sort of sees that if capitalistic society grows, they would benefit from that. And they are a powerful uh, political bloc. So they want to vote for a government that is sort of in, uh, leaning towards not uh, being uh, super leftist. So why do we see I mean, generally, middle classes world over have grown uh, in every country, uh, except barring few exceptions here and there. So why do we now see that, you know, there is a friction between general communities, uh, as well as the capitalistic sort of uh, institutions, and to an extent, the governments as well?
0: Well, I think the first place to start is to recognize that not all communities are benefiting, right? So so there is a, a, a wide difference even within industrial countries uh, between the old manufacturing communities, for example, and the service-oriented uh, mega cities that are that are doing very well. Uh, so first, uh, um, jobs uh, have disappeared from some places, even while they're being created elsewhere. And the overall level of unemployment hides a lot of differences across uh, across areas. And in areas which have lost jobs, a lot of people have left the labor force, so they're no longer counted as unemployed. Also, some are coming back in this period of strong employment but uh, but relatively uh, a, a large number has left so that's one that that there is there are islands of underdevelopment inside industrial countries second point to note is is this is not something that is remedied by stimulus uh, either fiscal or monetary stimulus if you are a area which has had very few jobs where crime is now rampant, where drug abuse is, is rampant, you're not going to be lifted. No business is going to come in just because interest rates are low. It doesn't really want to create employment. And even if it does create jobs, uh, you may not have in that community the people who are trained enough to Take those jobs, and this is true even of reasonable communities. I mean, think about Long Island City in in Queens when Amazon came in with uh, twenty five thousand jobs paying one hundred fifty thousand apiece. Uh, they weren't that interested. I would guess in part because many in the community wouldn't have been able to get those jobs. They required far more qualifications than the average person had. So, so one is one is uh, uh, that. Second is. Even these differences between communities, uh, one of the things you mentioned was the middle class. Well, across the industrial world, middle class jobs are shrinking relative to jobs at either margin, uh, both uh, relatively low skilled jobs and relatively high skilled jobs. I mean, think about the factory worker who's laid off. Uh, he may go work for Amazon, but uh, w- the work he does for Amazon is uh, in a warehouse with a, a microphone or uh, uh, in his ear telling him which uh, stack to go to to pick up which object to put into the uh, package that he's assembling. That's a relatively low-skilled jobs, the jobs of security guards, this, that. But once you lose that middle-class factory job, uh, you fall a fair distant distance. distance. So, so in a sense, you could argue uh, middle-income jobs are shrinking relative to jobs on either margin. But to get from the low-skilled job to that uh, relatively high skilled job requires a big jump in capabilities and that's where you know you don't find the right structures to allow you to get those capabilities you don't find the in in these these communities where the jobs have vanished it's very hard to get retooled and and so i think the angst is uh, precisely that we're no longer middle class and even though we want to cling to that middle class status the economics don't allow us to do that. And that causes great anger.
2: Professor, I'll let you come back in a question just one more second. Let me just reintroduce our, our guest here. We're talking with Professor Ragaram Rajan, uh, author of a new book, The Third Pillar. Uh, and, and Dr. Rajan, I'd be remiss if we didn't ask you, You know, given we, we have you know an India expert here, we have a China expert, and you talk a little bit on in the book about India versus China, and you know, you talked about why has India not progressed as fast as China, um, and and sort of just from your perch of having been at the head of the Central Bank of India, and sort of as you think about the challenges for India, there, we've been talking a lot about the the, the Modi elections and and as it's going to progress. Just curious from your perspective on India versus China, the the state of India and what they need to do to sort of really catch up and and, ex, and excel.
0: Well, I, I think uh, uh, to be. Um, To to say it as quickly as I can. I mean, the problem India has is it's got a society structured uh, to grow beyond middle income. It's got a democracy. Um, It's not got a very uh, capable government. Uh, It's relatively small, the size of the government relative to the country. Uh, And it's perhaps overly bureaucratic. Uh, And it doesn't have a very strong private sector, uh, uh, certainly not a private sector which is independent of the government, uh, but it does have a a fairly strong democratic structure. And what that does is it allows for uh, discussion of ideas and so on. It is something which is very good when a country wants to move away from middle income, because. Uh, um, that democratic structure, I think helps you in a world where you are at the frontier you 're about innovation you 're about ideas, uh, and democratic discussion helps the the sense of freedom that it brings. Uh, however, in getting to that middle income uh, where you need to build highways, where you need to build ports, airports, where you need uh, strong manufacturing. Uh, All that is held back because uh, to some extent, democracy uh, has to be navigated. Uh, In India, when you want to build out infrastructure, immediately you have people protesting because you need to take their land in order to build that infrastructure out. And enterprising politicians uh, find reason then to protest. Now, if you had a very capable government, this wouldn't be a problem. You'd you'd figure out ways to buy the land and pay off the people you need to pay off. But our government is not uh, very capable, and so it takes a long, long time to deal with these protests.
3: Marashan, these are, isn't that true? I mean, uh, you're giving very good examples. Uh, it's it's Heathrow wants to add another uh, airstrip. It's like seven years of fighting. So even in an advanced democratic country, you have... Wars on infrastructure that can do it. I mean, if the Chinese want to build another airstrip, it'll get done in six months. Uh, There won't be any complaints, or they'll be ignored. Uh, That's that's very true. You're absolutely
0: right. You're absolutely right. I mean, uh, the what uh, what the UK has is 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 still a more capable, effective government uh, than India has, and India deals with uh, NGOs and uh polit- political parties that are as uh, as committed as any in the first world but with a government which is uh, which is more second uh rather than first world and 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 as a result uh the government is overmatched and uh, these kinds of actions take too long and, and so I I would say China had a much better uh, path towards middle income because it could build out all this stuff. Uh, when decisions were taken, they were acted upon. Um, I think there are fragile uh, Because the party in China wants to maintain it, uh, its position at the head of the economy going forward, that, to my mind, is China's greatest challenge, that as it wants to reach the frontier... Uh, can it afford to have a dominant party uh, as opposed to a, a more competitive electoral uh, or political system? And uh, I would only note that no country uh, has actually achieved that. And if China does, it would be the first. Uh, and That makes me more skeptical that uh, the party can continue dominating as China reaches the frontiers. It will have to give and I would argue that what's been happening in China in the last few years is the, is going in the the opposite direction, and uh, there will they they could well be some course correction going forward. Uh, India, uh, on the other hand, has to do what China has already done, which is reach middle income, which means build out that infrastructure um, frustratingly uh, slowly, given the kinds of uh, of uh, you know, issues that it has to deal with. But I would say that once it does that, it is really well positioned. And the mistake in India that some people make is say we have to become authoritarian in order to reach that middle income. And and my sense is maybe, but that is going to hold up growth beyond that. And if we've already got a good democratic system, let's work with the democracy to make it work more efficiently rather than dispense with it.
3: Now you haven't commented specifically in your uh, opinion of Modi, and uh, I, I know. Do you rank him as one of those populist leaders? In your book, you talk about more radical people, and in, you know, on the Hindu nationalist front, uh, right. is and you don't put him in that category. Um, how do you and and growth under uh, Modi has been good. Uh, and in fact you I think for the first time ever actually exceeded GDP growth in China for a few years uh what what is your opinion of of his government and now that he even has a stronger uh, position in uh, in the parliament?
0: Well, uh, you know i i I think it's not easy to uh put uh, Mr. Modi and his economic beliefs into a particular box uh he he's not um you know as uh, others have uh, uh, commented he's not your uh, margaret thatcher or Ronald reagan uh, going to liberalize india into a market economy uh he's got very much the instincts of the gradualist uh, sort of um, reformer more trying to make the existing system work more efficiently rather than uh, significantly reduce the size of the public sector uh, or uh, you know, privatize entities or bring more market forces into play. Um, that said, uh, I, I think uh, the record uh, of the first five years of the Modi government was, was very mixed. Uh, and part of the problem, I think, was... Uh, uh, it was overly centralized and trying to, um, you know, work from a central office rather than uh, decentralize uh, the process of uh, of reform and growth. And uh, the net result is, yes, there have been some important reforms, the goods and services tax, the bankruptcy code. There have been some uh, not-so-good actions like the demonetization.
3: But yeah, on, on I wanted net, to ask you about that. Being a central banker, yeah, I, I was very opposed to it. Um, I actually thought that it was going to cost India more in his own popularity, but doesn't seem to have really done that in the last election. I'm uh, but you also thought that was not well done, or should it ever have been done to begin I, I, with? And I, this
0: is I didn't think it should have been done, and I, I have said that. Uh, uh, I, I said that at that time and, and mm-hmm. uh, before it was done, when okay. I was still governor. But um, the uh, I, I think the uh, the reality is the election. You're right was uh, was very strongly in his favor. It's not clear how much economics played a role in the election. But also, I would I would say that we have to be a little careful about the economic numbers coming out of India. There is there is a lot of debate about what these really mean and what the true level of economic growth, but also unemployment is. And I, I think the government re- recognizes that it has an economic problem to deal with. Now, I think we're going to see how this works out in the next budget, which is uh, due on July 5th. If, in fact, uh, Mr. Modi takes advantage of the massive mandate he's been given and pushes India uh, back on the course of economic reforms, we will see a substantial uh, amount of reforms in that budget, Uh, not just more spending or, or stuff like that, but really serious reform. If on the other hand, um, you know, uh, it is not in his DNA, and I would say we still don't know what that DNA is, Uh, if it's not in his DNA, we'll see more um, sort of a little bit of this and a little bit of that budget. And that, to my mind, is not what India needs at this point.
3: You're not implying that... Is there some question about that, I believe, 8% GDP growth? Are you saying that? Professor,
2: unfortunately, we're not going to have time oh, for him to answer that. that. <laughs> we're in our final <laughs> countdown. And I also wanted to ask him where there's some speculation that he's going to be uh, considered for the Bank of England job. So, Dr. Ajahn, we're going to have to have you back to uh, talk about your future and just uh, continue the conversation. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for taking the time with us Absolutely. today. Absolutely. You're most you. welcome. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.us upenn.edu.